everyone. Um, welcome back after that short break. I um, hope you all are suitably refreshed. Um, so we've got another um, panel of speakers for you now. Um, I should just say, um, for those of you who don't know me, um, I'm Raf Nicholson. Um, and I'm the chair of the British Society of Sports History, who's one of the co-organisers of this event. Um, and I'm going to be chairing this second panel. Um, so once again, what we're going to do is take both of the papers um, and then we will have time for questions at the end. Um, please do continue to type your questions in the chat. Um, please do continue to tweet about the event using the hashtag researching the games um, and yeah as I say we'll, we'll take questions at the end. Um, so we now move on to um, the uh, GLAM sector panel. GLAM is a, an acronym that I discovered recently. I think it's great, uh, great name for the panel. Um, so first up we have um, Dr Andrew Rackley um, from the British Library. Um, Andrew is part of the British Library's research development team. Um, and their work involves various activities to, to support and enable research collaborations through shared projects, workshops, event, events and other activities. Um, Andrew's a qualified archivist, having held posts at University College London Hospital, West Sussex Record Office and Dudley Metropolitan Borough Archives. And he previously worked as the BSA Fellow for Sociology at the Library on the Sociology in the Archives project. He has a particular interest in the library's role as an archive or memory institution and the wealth of resources it holds for sociological research. And his PhD considered the intersections between collecting, storing and disseminating the knowledge legacy of sports mega events, with a particular focus on the impact of key actors and agencies in relation to London 2012. So over to you, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you, Raph. Okay, let's... All right, hopefully everybody can see, uh, you can see my slides there. So uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Andrew Rackley. I'm a research development manager at the British Library. So I'm speaking today more in a personal capacity uh, than a professional one about the research that I conducted for my PhD thesis, archiving the gains, collecting, storing and disseminating the London 2012 knowledge legacy. Um, okay. So the idea of leaving a lasting legacy beyond an Olympic and Paralympic Games has become an increasingly persistent concept. It was certainly embedded into the bid for London 2012. Uh, many of you may recall the uh, Ferrari in 2015 around the so-called Singapore promise made in the wake of London's winning bid to leave a fitter, healthier nation and, uh, re and a regenerated area of East London. Indeed, legacy is often considered in these terms, yet too often little attention is paid to the documentary residue, part of the knowledge legacy left by such occasions. Uh, my presentation is going to look at a little bit of the background to my project. Uh, it elicits the underlying research design, summarizes some of the conclusions drawn about the process of documenting large-scale cultural phenomena such as the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Uh, the relevance and appropriate timing of my PhD was enhanced partly by its pro relative proximity to London 2012, I started in January 2013, but also for a contemporaneous concern among researchers within the field of sport and sociology, the significant opportunity to capture and document important sporting content might be missed. Uh, our keynote speaker for this event, Martin Polly, highlighted in the run-up to London 2012 that there was no meaningful legacy from either the Games of 1908 or 1948, that the national stock of Olympic-related collections was scattered, and that access to these collections was not always straightforward for the general public. Uh, this concern is mirrored by professionals within the archive sector who have considered how collections are often privately owned, spread thin both geographically across many institutions and in terms of content being mainly ephemeral, generally consisting of posters, flyers and tickets, for example, but containing little in the way of documenting the planning, undertaking and public experiences of such a mega event. And I think several of these points have been highlighted again today. More importantly, London 2012 has been called the first digital games. Between Beijing in 2008 and London 2012, the world witnessed the arrival of tablet computers, the growing ubiquity of smartphones and the birth of Twitter. 
Moreover, there was a 400% increase in digital coverage of the Games, with the BBC expanding from covering six events in Beijing to almost a full complement of 24 events at London. And the challenge of collecting, preserving, and providing access to such incorporeal content further enhanced the significance of properly archiving the Games. My research adopted a qualitative approach to examining the, um, the understanding of key actors and agencies within the archives, libraries and museums or memory institutions with respect to the role and function of sporting content held by them. It involved semi-structured interviews with staff at the library and other organisations, which I then subjected to a thematic analysis. As an AHRC collaborative doctoral award, my research was embedded within the library and I was afforded unparalleled access to staff in the former social sciences department, spending a year working in this environment. However, as London 2012 was a mega event and interest extended well beyond the host city, so too many organisations beyond the library were also acquiring content. Participation was organised into two broad categories to capture the experiences of professionals working in local organisations immediately affected by events and more international organisations that could address the games as a whole. Elements of ethnographic research were incorporated through recording field notes, detailing my overall experiences when visiting the participating memory institutions and observing professional practices at the library. The experiences of professionals working across the sector were considered as a whole in order to reveal the role and function of sport archives following London 2012. Each organisation that was involved in my research was and is governed to a greater or lesser extent by the legislative framework in which they operate. This context is important as it can have particular impact upon the content that is and can be collected by a memory institution. Three direct examples highlighted here are non-print legal deposit, the Local Government Records Act and the host city contract. Uh, legal deposit, uh, establishes that the library and the five other legal deposit libraries, including the Bodleian at Oxford, Cambridge University Library, the National Libraries of Scotland and Wales, and Trinity College Dublin, are entitled to one copy of every item published within the UK. Its significance for London 2012 is initially in how non-print legal deposit extended the scope of published material beyond print specifically identifying digital materials inclusive of the legislation. However, non-print legal deposit was only enabling legislation and required subordinate regulations to empower the libraries to acquire digital material. That these regulations did not exist until April 2013, notably after the conclusion of London 2012, this greatly affected the library's UK web archive team um, and their ability to document the event. Having no legal basis to collect and provide access to this material, the UK Web Archive had to seek permissions from digital content owners and publishers to avoid gaps existing within the collection. Alternatively, the Local Government Record Act principally provides for the provision of archive services to local governments and enables these organisations to collect all material of local significance to them. Yet whilst it enables organisations to collect in this way, the legislation also creates the potential for a fragmented and dispersed archival record. The geographic collecting enabled by the Local Government Records Act reveals the potential for conflicts of interest, especially between neighbouring boroughs. London 2012 was spread across six London boroughs, four of which included an area of the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. More significantly, two of the participating organisations, London Metropolitan Archive and Museum of London, revealed that their mandate uh, is to collect for the Greater London Area, which encompasses the, Olymp the Olympic Park and all of the host boroughs. And then ultimately organisations such as the National Archives and the British Library have a remit which extends to include the nation as a whole. So therefore it's essential that memory institutions do not operate in isolation. The diagram on the right here describes some of these relationships identified by, by participants. They can be considered as a chain of referrals horizontally between local institutions with a restricted geographical remit and vertically within larger institutions who can collect more widely. 
Yet it's important to note that these relationships operate in a multi-directional manner, from the bottom up, top down and middle out. Finally, the host city contract has received considerable media attention in recent weeks, particularly in discussions surrounding the forthcoming games and why Tokyo doesn't just cancel them in the light of the coronavirus pandemic. But the simple answer is that whilst the host city contract isn't specifically legislation, it does function as a binding contract between the local organizing committee and the IOC. The importance of this document to the discussion here is that the host city contract established the importance of records management for the London organizing committee. Where this document does not name any memory institution explicitly, its implications are pronounced as it clearly stipulates that all of the records generated by LOCOG are to be transferred to the IOC, exacerbating the potential for a dispersed legacy. With memory institutions seeking to document a knowledge legacy and a proprietary IOC, certainly uh, certain tensions arise between the public and private sectors. The diagram here represents some of the intricacies of collecting and storing content from an event like London 2012. Usually memory institutions acquire content in one of three extremely simplified ways. Uh, via purchase, where a memory institution takes outright ownership of the purchase content. Accession, where a memory institution receives content, typically from its creator, and the ownership is transferred. One of the most notable ways this can happen is when a corporation goes out of business and an archive retrieves its documentary residue. Uh, which happened, for instance, with uh, Woolworths as a relatively recent example. And finally, on loan, where a memory institution receives content, but not the ownership from the record creator. This latter model of loan is much less common now as space has become a premium within memory institutions. And incidents such as the withdrawal from and sale of the Wilkes archive back to Warwickshire Record Office in 2007 demonstrates the precarity of such arrangements. In this instance, the collection had been initially deposited on loan in the 1950s, and considerable staff time devoted to describing and preserving its content over the intervening years. Had the record office not been able to raise sufficient funds, this collection and all of the knowledge associated with its preservation and description could have been lost to private possession. But not every private owner wants to sell their material. As displayed in the diagram, whilst Lockhog was the core creating agency, it held its mandate to undertake London 2012 from the IOC. As this material belongs to an international non-governmental organization, the National Archives had no mandate to collect any of this content. As the National Archive of the UK, their collecting activities are restricted to acquiring the records of our government. Therefore, National Archives undertook a year-long year-long negotiations to reach an agreement with the IOC to secure the deposit of Lockhog's records, rather than having them revert into the possession of the IOC. However, with Lockhog dissolving almost immediately after the conclusion of the Games, the IOC retained ownership of these records, appointing the British Olympic Association, and to a lesser extent the British Paralympic Association, as intermediaries, with the National Archives taking physical custody of the records. So there then remains the potential for this material to be withdrawn from the National Archives, representing an existential threat to this knowledge legacy. This is a particular challenge associated with corporate archives. Um, while such organisations recognise the value of good record-keeping practice and how this serves to benefit the parent organisation, there is little room for preserving records beyond their immediate use, a task few of these bodies would appear to consider essential to their missions. Furthermore, record-creating agencies associated with the games, such as LOCOG, are finite. And the impermanence of bureaucratic Olympic and Paralympic structures and related pop-up organisations challenges memory institutions to demonstrate the value inherent in the records that are created. Oh. Yet, conveying the idea of a knowledge legacy is no simple task when an organisation's engagement largely ends with delivery. The legacy of the games is for another time and another body of people, including the archiving. Such an attitude is evident in the three quotations from Lord Sebastian Coe, the chair of Lockhart, which are seen here. 
In 2006, not long after the bittersweet announcement that London would host the Games on 6th of July 2005, Legacy is a cornerstone epicentral to delivery. Yet only a year later, this nine-tenths has shrunk to 50%, and by March 2012, it's not my This gradual disassociation from responsibility of delivering upon London 2012's legacies over the six-year build-up to the Games, the game immediately before the event, is evidence, is evidence of a clear diminishing focus on legacy. Such a division of labour, as represented here, absolves the creating agency of any responsibility for the longevity and sustainability of the content that they create and necessitates intervention by memory institutions to ensure the custody and accessibility of any knowledge legacy thus created. Findings from my research indicated that access was the cornerstone upon which the dissemination of London 2012's knowledge legacy rested. Indeed, all of the evidence suggested that there was little point in undertaking the collection or storage of content if access was not being provided. Such an observation was very pertinent in relation to invisible media. And the phrase invisible media typically referred to digital content insofar as it was incorporeal. Therefore, it was not immediately obvious what information was contained within a file unless specific controlled naming conventions were adopted. In the context of London 2012, organizations such as LOCOG created much invisible media en masse, which required certain interventions from memory institutions to ensure that they knew what content was being collected in order to disseminate it to the general public. As organizations have moved further into the digital age, the amount and complexity of content generated by society has dramatically increased. This is especially true of London 2012, management of which occurred in the context of rapid technological advancement demonstrating a marked shift from analog to digital content production. In this respect, London was the first true digital games insofar as societal use of digital platforms increased whilst memory institutions' ability to capture data broadened the potential content it was possible to capture and store. The amount of content created by society and collected by memory institutions has resulted in several organisations reporting severe cataloguing backlogs. This demonstrated a concern with memory institutions of content being housed but hidden, collected and stored but not disseminated. Catalogues are, uh, are a key facet of memory institutions, providing a route of access into their collections. Findings suggested that in order to increase participation and widen engagement, remote access to content needed to be provided. Yet as user research strategies have become increasingly reliant on online search engines recognized by participants as the Google factor, the importance of making catalog information available online has subsequently risen. Respondents indicated that the demand for digital content belies a risk that material not discoverable online is believed to be non-existent, a point of particular significance in relation to London 2012 as digital games. An idiosyncratic hurdle to accessing London 2012 content are the restrictions placed upon memory institutions by the regulations surrounding Olympic, Olympic and Paralympic branding. As I noted earlier, the legacy of London 2012 was not a priority for the IOC, IPC or LOCOG, whose involvement ended immediately after the delivery of the Games. The rigid protection of the Olympic brand was more concerned with preserving business assets than it was with preserving the knowledge legacy for London 2012. Certainly, the discoverability of dedicated London 2012 websites, as we can see here, including Sporting Cities, Sport and Society, and Mandeville Legacy, were reduced by the restrictive naming and description conventions that were enforced. Now, notably, none of these websites include either Olympic or Paralympic in their titles relying on pre-existing awareness of the resource or for researchers not to fall foul of the so-called Google factor. The public-private tension surrounding the ownership of material reflects the differences between the very public role played by memory institutions and the private business nature of the IOC and IPC. In contrast with the strict protection of branding, however, it's notable that access to London 2012 content has alternatively been facilitated through efforts by memory institutions to encourage the perception that content should be considered open rather than closed. This has supported the dissemination of content otherwise would have been subject to a blanket closure period, such as the 20-year rule associated with the National Archives. 
In this way, it can be considered that London 2012's knowledge legacy is not housed but hidden, rather it exists to support research into broad subjects such of societal interest that surround the games. And so five years on and one whistle-stop tour of my research later, what can I reflect on the knowledge legacy from London 2012? Well, the management of the knowledge legacy hinges on a delicate balance of access and preservation, a balance that intrinsically links the tripartite themes of collection, storage and dissemination. It's imperative to build and preserve new content, but unless this is made accessible alongside resources available to many diverse and distinct communities, the archival record will become stagnant and obsolete. At the start of the presentation, I indicated that my research developed from a concern that London 2012 knowledge um, legacy might be missed. My research demonstrated this wasn't the case, though it was by no means an unmitigated success, and it comes with several caveats. Whilst it's possible to identify a single collection for the London Organising Committee's records describing the organisation and delivery of the games, the broader collection still remains fragmented. But to tell any story other than the official narrative uh, that the local collection embodies requires visiting many different organisations and potentially even navigating their internal idiosyncrasies. For instance, researching the library might involve searching across three separate catalogues to identify relevant content. Published material is available through the Explore catalogue. Uh, our sound and moving image catalogue covers oral histories and broadcast media. And the UK Web Archive itself um, is, is home to a lot of our digital content. This, however, is not an uncommon experience when working with archives, and it's usually rewarding to dive into what one participant characterised as a very, very large bucket of stuff. Um, so in conclusion, archival research is rarely easy, but it is very rewarding. There is a plethora of Olympic and Paralympic content available for research to utilise part of London 2012 knowledge legacy. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Andy. Um, really interesting paper there. Um, as I said earlier, um, we will take questions at the end um, when we've heard our, our second paper. Um, so our, our, our second speaker today um, is Kaya Mello. Um, he is a PhD student in digital humanities at the School of Advanced Study um, in the University of London. Um, and he holds a BA in journalism and an MA in communication studies, um, both from the Federal University of per per Pernambuco in Brazil. He's a Marie Curie fellow working as a researcher for the project Cleopatra, which aims to explore major events that influence and shape our lives and our societies through advanced cross-lingual processing of textual and visual information. He's worked in TV production for the Olympic Broadcasting Services, and his main research interests rely on the use of natural language processing applied to the fields of media studies, digital methods, urban studies, and digital activism. So, Keo, over to you. So, hi, everyone, and thanks, Raf, for the introduction. So, we're going to have a little bit more about legacy today. Um, as Raf said, my name is Caio Mello, and I'm a second year PhD student in digital humanities at the School for Advanced Study. For my thesis, I'm looking at the media coverage of the Olympic legacies of Rio 2016 and London 2012. I'm interested in understanding the different ways in which the concept of legacy understood and narrated online. So let me start by presenting an overview of this presentation. I will start by um, talking about the Cleopatra project and its main objectives. Then I will go through the concept of Olympic legacy, the process of extracting data from archives using Shine, the cleaning and filtering states to make the data usable, the qualitative analysis exploring the ways in which the Olympic legacy of London was framed by the, by the media, and finally, I will present uh, the preliminary conclusions as it's an ongoing project based on my PhD research. So my research is part of the project uh, Cleopatra, a project funded by uh, the Mahikuhi Actions Program, which aims to explore major events that influence and shape our lives and our societies through advanced cross-lingual processing of textual and visual information. 
So today I will present part of my research developed in the UK web archive as a result of a partnership between the School of Advanced Study and the British Library. Um, it's entitled Local, National and International Aspir Aspiration, Framing London's Olympic Legacy by Combining Multiple um, Sources in Shine. This research project is supervised by Professor Jane Winters and Martin Steer. And I would like to thank very much Jason Weber for the support given during my secondment in the UK Web Archive. So let's start by talking a bit about the idea of the legacy. Despite being an important pillar of the Olympic movement and also regularly brought up to justify cities and nations participation in the event, the concept of legacy is not very clearly defined and continues to require thought by scholars and members of the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, to determine or even get closer to exactly what it means. For Cartoon and Prose, legacies planned and unplanned, positive and negative, intangible and tangible structures created through a sporting event that remain after the event. So this figure of the rings show the most mentioned words in news articles covering the Olympic legacy of London from my data set. To navigate in the archives to build the data set to start this research, I have decided to use Shine. So Shine is a tool to explore .uk websites archived by the Internet Archive between 1996 and April 2013. While a big part of the content in the UK web archive can only be accessed from inside the British Library, Shine is open access and provides us with search results and URL data that can be easier to manage. Although my initial interest was mainly focused on understanding the journalistic framing of legacy, looking at other sources has proven to be beneficial in a comparative perspective. For this purpose, I searched for articles on Olympic Legacy London via Shine and selected among ten, the 10 domains provided by the platform, three new websites, uh, bbc.co.uk, guardian.co.uk, and independent.co.uk. One official government website, uksport.gov.uk, and one activist blog, gamesmonitor.org.uk. So the texts were um, collected, processed, cleaned, and filtered using Python scripts and combined it with articles extracted uh, from the live web. So I'm not just using archives. The first figure represents Fly's pipeline to explore data. In this model, we have seven states, acquire, parse, filter, mine, represent, refine, and interact. What's interesting to note here uh, is that these steps are not that straightforward and they require constant return to previous steps to improve the data analysis. To summarize the process, I have the three images you can see below. The first one is a Python script to collect the articles from Shine and save them as text files. The second shows the main problem I had while searching for texts. Sometimes Shine doesn't return in the results just text where the word search it appear in the article. In this example, Big Legacy is mentioned in a sidebar and the article does not cover the topic that we are interested in. Finally, the third is about cleaning the results and excluding articles that do mention the Olympic Legacy of London but not as the main topic. This one, for example, is about Athens Olympics. And an important stage that's worth mentioning here is the duplication. Many pages extracted via Shine are duplicates. It was important to remove duplicates to avoid errors in the word counts performed later on in the next steps. In this example from, uh, for uksport.gov.uk, around 19,000 duplicates were found and removed from the list of articles to be included in the research corpus. Uh, this chart 
illustrates uh, one of the biggest challenges to work with data from web archives. It's just a that remains as relevant for the project after being filtered. These are many different news sources I've been using in my research. In red, you see articles collected from uh, the UK Web Archive using Shine. In orange, articles collected using Google Search. So articles collected via Shine require much more effort from researchers to process the data. As you can see, um, the red lines, they go up for 4, 18, 34, and 62%. It means that uh, in the first example, just 4% of the articles collected are relevant for the research. I mean, they really cover the topic we are interested in analyzing. So the data uh, from the articles was ranked and the top 50 bigrams mentioned in the text were transferred to a spreadsheet using the natural language toolkit, a suite of Python libraries for linguistic analysis. Bigrams are the co-occurrence of two words in a text. This word cloud shows the most mentioned bigrams in the corpus. The list of trends was then used in a first distant reading to give a sense of the most dis discussed topics and then combine it later on with a more qualitative approach of close reading for a deep understanding of context. So now let's move on to the qualitative analysis. These bigrams have revealed a significant difference in the way the Olympic legacy of London was approached by different sources from 2004 to 2020. Among the most cited bigrams by news publishers are young people and school sport, both referring to the promises included in the Legacy Plan of London, published in 2008 by the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, the DCMS. Promises number one and three, entitled um, Making the UK a World-Leading Sporting Nation and Inspiring a Generation of Young People, included the engagement of young people in physical activities by increasing the offer of high-quality sports. However, the drop in the number of 16 to 25-year-olds playing sport after the games was one of the main topics highlighted by the media. In this article published by The Guardian, you can see despite the inspired generation rhetoric used to justify the investment in, London, in the London Olympics, new official figures show that the number of 16 to 25 year olds playing sports has gone down since the games. While both young people and school sports are a response to the legacy plan published by the DCMS, the most mentioned bigram in the list of texts analyzed did not receive much attention in this uh, document, and it was uh, West Ham. The destiny of the Olympic Stadium became one of the most controversial events around the Olympic legacy of London. Initially, the disagreement on whether it should remain as an athletic athletics uh, venue or be handed over to West Ham United drew the, the attention of the media with important voices like the Olympic minister Tessa Joel and ex-London mayor Ken Livingstone supporting the opposition against the football club. The dispute between West Ham and Tottenham for the Olympic Stadium and the threat of becoming a white elephant shed light on the place as a symbol of London's Olympic legacy. The media coverage of London's legacy contrasts with the much more abstract and broader background found in texts uh, published by the British government. International inspiration. Articles published by uh, uksport.gov.uk have revealed as focused mainly on the International Inspiration Program, a project to promote sports in some of the most disadvantaged communities in the world. While the media seemed to be looking for inter internal issues, the government was targeting international audiences. The choice of the word inspiration references a much more immaterial and abstract idea of legacy 
that con contrasts with the very concrete discussion around the Olympic Stadium hosted by the media. In this article, you see a lot reveals that pioneering social and sporting London International Legacy Initiative, the International Inspiration Program, has far exceeded a target to inspire to have 12 million children and young people across 20 countries. And again, the concept, the concept of inspire is taken here as a sort of immaterial tangible legacy that's difficult to measure. Um, looking at the bigrams obtained from activist blogs, the concerns are shown to have been more local, targeting primarily challenges faced by citizens of East London. Among the main bigrams are Stratford City, new jobs, and public housing. The community-focused approach highlights a significant discrepancy between the framing of the event by the government and by the activist blocks. This example illustrates my comment in the previous slide. Uh, this article published in February 2008 called uh, How the London Olympics is Selling East London Short and a 10-point plan for a more positive local legacy says that the various delivery bodies involved in the games have promised new jobs, new business, new green areas, and new homes. But big questions remain about precisely how local people and local business will benefit from the preparation, delivery, or legacy of the games. So these are preliminary steps to understand the multiple ways in which Long London's legacy was understood and narrated. The different perspectives indicate the distance between immediate public interest, much more anchored in tangible legacies, and government official communication with a much more intangible and abstract approach, like the concept of inspiration. Um, the Summer Olympic Games are hosted every four years by a different city, bringing together its promises to be an urban development catalyst and also the past events frustrations. Understanding the communication processes around uh, the Olympics is fundamental for the future planning of effective legacies that correspond to the interests of the nation's citizens. So that's it. Thank you very much for watching. Thanks very much, Kaya. Um, really, in, another really interesting presentation. Um, Andy, do you want to come back in? I see you've turned your video on. That's great. Um, so we will have some time now um, for questions. Um, so um, please feel free to raise your hand if you have a question. Um, there have been a few things typed in the chat. Um, so I will I will start with those. Um, Andy, I think you've sort of been engaging with um, the question from Elaine in the chat particularly. Um, so do have a read of that if um, anyone anyone else tuning in who hasn't uh, kind of caught up with that conversation. Um, but there was an initial question um, from Ian, actually, um, which was a, a question for Andy. Um, has access to documents for the 1908 and 1948 games improved at all? Just thinking about some of the work across libraries and archives looking at historical collections so kind of as a result of the london 2012 games has that had an impact on um kind of the availability of material for for earlier periods i suppose um so i'll, I'll do my best to address this although i don't know to what extent i can really um i can really do so because i wasn't really directly looking at that material um Certainly, I think the increased interest in and around London 2012 will have driven um, that to some extent, and the research that is... I've been muted somehow. Anyway, um, we'll always drive that to a certain extent and will help because we're always learning where new material is. Um, but without doing any sort of uh, comprehensive look, it, it is difficult to say. Um, 
I know that uh, there are, whenever doing archive research, you're going to come in into conflict with the same sort of issues that uh, that we've heard about throughout uh, many of the presentations today, which is finding material, knowing sometimes knowing what you want before you know what to look for. And it, it often relies on serendipity to a certain extent of finding something unrelated that just happens to mention something else or just talking to an archivist who happens to know a little bit of information that you were missing. And one of the parts of uh, one of the findings from my research that I didn't really get the chance to touch upon was there's an incredible amount of tacit knowledge held within archives um, about what material exists within them um, that you can learn from speaking to the archivists that isn't necessarily clear from catalogue entries. One of the issues with older material, um, as I'm sure Ian will be aware, is um, the archival profession doesn't frequently have time to go back and revisit things that were catalogued years ago. So you might find that um, something, that the, the existing records don't, buy, don't mention things that we might consider to be important now, which can all have an effect on how visible um, material is. Uh, so I'm sorry, and I don't think I can thoroughly answer that question, um, but uh, maybe we can find out. Perhaps uh, Martin Polly might pick it up um, tomorrow a little bit in his um, in his keynote. Um, thanks, Andy. Um, there was a, a question relating to that sort of from from Kevin. Um, the documents that you mentioned um, in that have been deposited in the National Archives um, are those open to view, or um, is there some kind of um, kind of date been put on on accessing those in future, given that they are kind of government records and potentially sensitive? Um, yeah, so that is a good question, and that's uh, something that kind of paradoxically, the um, as Kevin recognised, being with my research being so close to London 2012, that's an element that was quite challenging um, as a as a case for this. Um, so the the records of Barcelona 1992 were catalogued by the, uh, by the State Archive in Barcelona. Their catalogue for that event was finally completed in 2007. So um, on an equivalent timeline, it's still going to be quite a while until we've got a full idea of what is available um, from the National Archives. Uh, there is certain content available. I believe that I don't know the ins and outs of the agreement. Um, that is something that if you speak to the National Archives, you're much more likely to learn in detail. But there are stipulations involved in the uh, negotiations in the terms on which they are held, which may very well affect the, um, the openness or the accessibility, which comes with it being a private archive. Um, the IOC are able to make certain stipulations about accessing that material. It might be as simple as what you see with the British Olympic Association archive at the University of East London, which is you need permission from the BOA to access that material, but it might be more severe. There could be blanket restrictions. That will depend on the content um, of those records, and that can differ across the breadth of the collection from item to item. Um, so I, I can't answer that in full detail, um, but that is, uh, it is something that if you are interested in it, um, speak to the National Archives, they will be much better, uh, in a much better position to advise on what is and is not accessible from within that collection. Thank you. Um... I'm going to ask a question um, to both of you, if I may, Chair's prerogative. Um, it's kind of about um, legacy more generally, which both of your papers kind of covered. Um, and it just strikes me, having read a little bit about this, um, that actually um, this kind of idea about 
making huge claims to legacy and then not necessarily following through. Um, and also um, what you were talking about, Kayo, about um, there being a kind of disgruntled local population um, who feel that um, they haven't really been represented in, in the Olympics, that those issues aren't unique, aren't going to be unique to the London experience, I suppose, and will kind of carry across um, lots of nations um, and lots of different games. Um, so, how, you know, are there examples of the kind of um, issues that you're talking about or have you tapped into sort of literatures, uh, Kayo, in your research, um, looking at the ways in which the London experience might compare to other games? Yes, I think this is very interesting uh, because uh, for my research, I'm studying uh, London's and real legacies specifically. Of course, I'm reading about other legacies like as a in to have this perspective. But um, at this moment, I'm in a very interesting stage where I'm comparing using um, a methodology of sentiment analysis, which is also a natural language processing technique to uh, identify the sentiment in the in the articles published in Brazil and in the UK about Rio and London's Olympics, and what I find interesting is that uh, Rio's coverage of the uh, the Olympic legacy is much more negative than London's. Um, although there are some um, newspapers here that have uh, uh, identified negative uh, things about London's legacy to be mentioned, but uh, most of them. Uh, they focused in more negative aspects uh, regarding Rio's Olympics. And um, how it is different uh, for, for these specific Olympics, I think first because of the, the brand of the Olympics uh, to be, again, this idea of inspiring a generation. I think um, in, in the plan of legacy of, for, for London, for example, they, they have like clear the idea of making the UK a welcoming country. And then you have all this process with Brexit and things happening after. So it's very interesting to see um, how the, the and, and, and if, you, if you look back for the, the, the last major sporting events, they happen, they, they tend to happen in countries that want to present themselves for the world. Um, for different reasons, but uh, it usually uh, recently emer emergent countries like um, in Russia, China, uh, South Africa, Brazil, and then you bring this to the UK, uh, to London, and uh, present in the in this way to be welcoming, and then everything changes after. I mean, and depending on the the point of view, but um, yeah, I think it's this is very particular of the the experience of the London's legacy, this more abstract idea of legacy. Thank you, that's really interesting. Andy, did you have anything you wanted to add? Um, I don't think I have too much to, to add to that. I mean, um, the, the interesting thing with legacy is it's, it can be interpreted in a multitude of different ways. Um, and I think it's most commonly, um, particularly in the public mindset associated with the, the physical buildings that are left behind and their individual experiences of, um, of, of the, the event itself. I mean, if I may reflect relatively critically about the, the time I would recall from my own experience, there being a lot of um, concern in the build-up to London 2012, um, and there was a lot of resistance, but as soon as, in a typically British manner, as soon as it started and the sun came out, everybody was all happy and smiles and dancing, and it was great, and it was a really good time. Um, and I think that, um, to, a, to a certain extent, can do things, um, it can cloud sort of your judgment. The one, one of the other uh, things that I've always wondered, though, is whether if Team GB hadn't done quite as well at London 2012, whether public opinion would be much different to what it actually is. I think it's in general remembered quite well um, in terms of its, um, but in, in a public sense, um, but there's much more sort of beneath the surface um, 
in, in terms of the actual legacy that essentially slips under the radar. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a very nuanced uh, question, really. Thank you. Um, we've had a question come in from um, from Dawn um, that, that about Paralympic legacy, um, which um, Dawn says is not often mentioned. Um, why do you think this might be? Um, and, and I suppose, yeah, um, just how, yeah, thinking about how Paralympic legacy might relate to to um, both of your papers. So um, I don't know. Does anyone want to take this one first? I, well, I'll, I'll say I'll give kind of some thinking time. I, there's not too much. I mean, um, I'd be interested, for instance, to get um, Ian and a couple of other people's perspective on this as well. My inclination would be to say it's it, to some extent it's still because Paralympics is still sort of seen as the, the, the poor sibling of the Olympics. It's, it's frequently an afterthought. Um, and you're not necessarily going to be associated with that. I mean, even thinking back to London 2012, when the government uh, published their, um, their, their plan, their, they included five legacy promises and then hastily changed it to six when they shoehorned in a recognition of, um, of a, a legacy for the Paralympics and disability. I think that is... Um, to me, that seems to be the key thing is that it's just not considered in the same breath, but that is going to be something hopefully that continues to change as um, the stature of the the event grows. It certainly would be um, something that would be nice to see. There's also a question though of the fact that most of the investment, is seen to be done for the Olympics and the Olympics occurs first. If you took away the Olympics, if you separated out as historically happened, the Olympics and the Paralympics, and the Paralympics was a separate event hosted in a separate city, then maybe we'd see some more of that discussion. But I feel that because it's tagged on and associated, that that might have some elements of it. The Olympics happens, that leaves its legacy, and the first beneficiary of the legacy is the Paralympics. Okay. Um, Kaya, anything to add? Uh, yeah, uh, just quickly. Uh, I, I think this is very interesting because um, initially my project was called uh, Olympics and Paralympics uh, Media Coverage. And then it's changing, and this is a valid, valid critique, I think, for myself. Um, but mainly because when I look for data about uh, Olympic legacy, usually uh, media articles are related to um, Olympic legacy and not Paralympic legacy. I think one of the, the, the main um, reasons is that Olympic legacy is still very focused on infrastructure, as Andy said. So they're talking about stadiums, about transportation, about um, improving the uh, life in cities, uh, jobs and homes, and very specific things that are very um, uh, tangible and uh, concrete about how to improve the, the urbanization. And um, so, and not exactly about the other aspects that are involved in the legacy that could be represented, but are not the main focus of the, the media coverage uh, usually. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Ian, I don't know if you're still there, Ian Britton, if you wanted to come in on that, because this is obviously your um, area of expertise about um, kind of- How long have you got? Um, <laughs> You maybe give it to us condensed into two minutes. Oh God! Um, well, I mean, I actually presented at the International Symposium on Adaptive Physical Activity two weeks ago on this very subject. Um, I mean, a lot of it is. I mean, that actually that was a really interesting point when he said the Paris is the first beneficiary of the Olympic legacy. There's there's some truth in that. Um, it, it's sort of. 
in many ways, the, Olymp the, the Paralympics have benefited from this close relationship with the Olympic Games. And I don't think it would be at the point it's at today without that relationship. And, that, you know, I don't think you can, anybody can deny that. Um, but I do think we're still in a position, I think, where to separate the two games, I don't think the Paralympics is at a level just yet where it could survive wholly on its own. The combining games, I think, is absolutely fraught with problems in terms of, you know, cost in having to increase the size of the village, more venues, etc. And I think the Paralympics would then disappear again under this Olympic umbrella. Um, but I do... I, at the moment, I think the, the Paralympics is probably benefiting more from the relationship than it's losing. But I do think, particularly as the Olympic Games starts to solve some of these issues it's got, it may cause more problems for the Paralympics because most of them are financially related. Um, I mean, like I say, I could talk for hours on this subject. Um, but I think at the end of the day, a lot of it does come down to, you know, ableism and the, the, the relative value of the non-disabled athlete against the disabled athlete, which is, you know, something I've spent 20 years fighting against. Um, you know, it'll still be going on long before I'm, or long after I'm dead and buried. Um, but, you know, somebody's got to keep knocking on the door and, uh, shaking their fist and hopefully little by little things will change I mean you but he did say that about the the facilities you know and, and how everything was about facilities well the one thing you didn't mention was the accessibility of those facilities you know that's a major issue and if, if you can that, that's the, the two major issues with, within disability are the physical environment and people's attitudes. And those are the two things that we need to change. And, you know, particularly the physical environment in terms of an Olympic Games host city, with doing all of that construction work, that's one thing they really can do if they want to. But the key is if they really want to. But we saw after London 2012 how the government's attitude towards people with disabilities, it was a complete 180. We went from the Paralympics is going to do all these wonderful things for people with disabilities to look at all these benefits cheats and this whole narrative of, you know, people pretending to be disabled, which actually destroyed all the positives that had come out of the Paralympic Games in London 2012. And I better stop there, otherwise you'll just really get me off on a roll. Thanks very much, Ian. Um, yeah, some uh, very important points there, um, and um, a good, a good question, a good, a good discussion. Um, we're um, almost out of time, um, but there was just one more question that had come through earlier in the chat um, that I hadn't picked up on, which is from Verity, um, which I think is to Andy. Um, she says, um, any reflections or future thoughts on the knowledge legacy of non-Olympic or Paralympic events in the UK? For example, um, kind of old or newly formed professional leagues, World Cups, um, like the Netball World Cup in Liverpool, the Commonwealth Games next year. Um, can we kind of learn from London 2012 to do a better job of encouraging the balances involved in knowledge legacies? Uh, yeah, and I'll I'll try not to take up too much time with my answer, um, partly because it's, it's, it's a straightforward answer, but it's more complicated than that as well. There are things that we can take away from London 2012 that are very applicable more broadly um, across sport in, in, in general. Um, but they're not necessarily always things that are easy to implement, um, relating to a certain extent to what uh, Ian's just said. Some of it is attitudinal, both from um, both from sport, where there seemed to me to be a sense of the people who are organising to 
suggest, and again, this comes back to things that Ian and others have said earlier, that, well, this isn't relevant. No, it's not historically interesting. Nobody's going to care for this. Um, and then another um, attitudinal barrier that you get from the other side, which typically comes from within archives, where people don't believe that sport is historically valuable. It's not worth collecting. Um, and you need to kind of have staff on the inside who are going to drive that collection forward um, in order to do it, because otherwise people are happy to sit back and say, well, we'll get what we get. It's it's not my, it's not my cup of tea. Um, so yeah, it's not a straightforward answer, but uh, there is there are things that we can that you can sort of do and certainly think about. And I'm very happy to speak to Verity uh, at length about that separately. Great. Uh, thanks very much, Andy. Um, and um, I think that we better wrap up there. Um, thanks so much, everyone, um, for coming to this first day of our, our two-day event. Um, can we just um, thank all of our speakers again, if everyone could just temporarily unmute um, and give all of our speakers today um, a round of applause.